we all know how to act graciously mm-hmm. in a moment. It's usually not our initial action that reveals whether or not it's grace. It's how when somebody else doesn't react the way we want them to, it's our reaction to that reaction that shows whether or not it's grace. Welcome to Grace in 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. This is Ed Mellick, and I'll be your host tonight. Most people listening to our live broadcast are on their way home from work, typically, grinding through rush hour traffic. I have to believe that most, if not all of you, have had your share of challenges at work today, including working with people that we don't necessarily get along with and perhaps don't even like. What would you do if you found out that one of those people was actively trying to get you fired? Would you mount a counter campaign and maybe even try to get them fired? Or would you try to take the high road and ignore them, letting your work speak for itself? Is there another option? What would you say to the idea of actively trying to make that person's day better every day without regard to how they react, perhaps even working to get them promoted? The question is, does that sound ridiculous? Well, today we're joined by John McGowan, the lead pastor at Restoration City Church in Arlington, a four-year-old church that meets in Gunston Middle School. John joins us to talk about the prevalence of ungrace in society these days, the importance of countering it, and what grace looks like in its most powerful form. John, welcome to Grace in 30. Well, thanks, Ed. It's great to be here with you tonight. So let's just kick it right off by talking about ungrace. I just turning on the TV, looking at the news, everything we see going on, it just seems so prevalent. What's going on? Well, I think, I mean, there's there, there's two things. One, you're completely right. The default condition of the human heart is not grace, and the prevailing narrative in our culture is not grace either. Um, and I think it's for a couple of reasons. I mean, number one, the story that you told her, that hypothetical at the beginning of the show, I mean, the mere suggestion that here is somebody actively trying to get me fired and I'm going to work to get them promoted that just seems absurd. I mean, that's almost one of those, surely you don't mean that. I thought you were describing grace when you were saying, hey, yeah, they're trying to get me fired, but at least I'm being civil and I'm trying to take the high road and I'm not gossiping about them and I'm not doing all of these ungracious things. Clearly, that was the right answer. And then you kept going. Mm -hmm. You weren't done. You said, well, hey, what if instead of trying to just even play civil, you tried to bless them. You tried to serve them. You tried to promote them. You tried to elevate them. I I mean, I think there's something in all of us that are like, that's craziness. Nobody does that. And I think that's a reflection of our um, understanding of grace. And I think it's a reflection of how rare grace is in our world. And our culture, I mean, particularly here in this moment, we are in a cultural moment where the defining narrative is you better agree with me about absolutely everything because if you don't i'm almost morally obligated as weird as that sounds to say i'm almost morally obligated to attack you and tear you down you know i I have to i almost have to treat you as an enemy and that is like it's the complete antithesis of grace it's the complete opposite of it yeah, I was talking to you. I heard, um, I think it's David Brooks who said that um, partisanship is the new idolatry. People are just on these extremes of various issues, and, and there's, there's no compromise. There's no gray area. It's just extreme. 
Well, and I think that's true. I mean, you know, you, you say partisanship, so I think certainly it's almost the the easy example to look at our politics, to turn on uh, m- the majority of talk radio, to turn on so much of cable news. And it's just, you know, who, who's attacking who today? Who's calling who an idiot in a larger, louder voice? I mean, it's just sort of, we almost make an art form out of how ungracious we can be. Like, wow, you know, he was spectacularly ungracious and in an entertaining way. So I really loved that. Um, and we all rush to watch it on YouTube. Well, we do. And, and, you know, we complain about how terrible everybody is, yet we uh, soak it up and we elect and, you know, we are as much culpable as anyone else. But in some ways, you know, that lack of grace is that we see in the, the political arena that we see in, in public life is probably not much different sometimes than the culture of grace that we are involved in creating ourselves in our offices or in our neighborhoods. I mean, in some ways, if you want to see depravity, go to an HOA meeting for crying out loud. Mm. You don't have to look at yeah. Congress. You have to look at people that are ticked off that their neighborhood dues have gone up or that the swimming pool wasn't cleaned or something like that. You, I mean, you'll see crazy when you go there. Um, you also know, so we, in our homes. I was going to say that. And now we have, you know, deal with, hey, what about our marriages? What about uh, the way we parent our children? What about the way we interact with our siblings or our friends? Um, I mean, ungrace is sort of ev- everywhere. Yep. And it's depressing to say that. I mean, everybody, you know, you're like, man, that seems ugly to kind of say. But I think if we're thoughtful and reflective, you realize that it's unfortunately true. So let's define the word grace and then you you mentioned on the phone when we talked that your your business is to create a grace culture in Arlington. tell us how you're going to go about doing that what does that mean well i think the key to that starts with your your first question about defining grace right grace is you know kind of the the standard definition is its unmerited favor right so we can't even enter into the arena of grace until I have made it clear that I don't deserve whatever kindness, whatever goodness, whatever civility, whatever it is you're about to extend to me, it can't even sort of, this is almost a definitional question, it can't by definition become grace until I have stepped out of the circle of deserving it, earning it, any of that. So I think a grace culture is one that is willing to treat people well precisely when they don't deserve it. Yep. And and also you and I talked about this. It's grace is not only something that's unearned, undeserved, unmerited, but it's unwavering. I had a roommate, an office mate once at work, and he came in the next day. One day in the morning, he said, oh, I tried to extend grace to my wife, and, and she didn't react the right way. So I was like, ah, oh, the heck with it. I, 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 I extended grace, and I said, well, that's not grace because you didn't stick with it. Right. I mean, it's sort of a we, – we all do it. I mean, we, we all know how to act graciously in a moment. It's usually not our initial action that reveals whether or not it's grace. It's how when somebody else doesn't react the way we want them to – it's our reaction to that reaction that shows whether or not it's grace. So talk about creating a grace culture. I, I think the simple reality, and, and this is true in kind of every sphere of life, you cannot um, pass on to other people what you don't have. And I think the challenge for all of us, really, I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the program. We live in a world that is not gracious. 
it is not what we are taught um, in really any area of uh, society. So in order for us to create a grace culture, in order for us to show grace, the first move, you know, the, the, the first move for somebody listening to this broadcast tonight is not to be, you know, sitting there ticked off in traffic on 395 and say, that's it. Okay, but I'm going to be gracious when I get home. I'm going to be gracious starting tomorrow. Gosh darn it. You know, um, whatever happens, I'm going to do that. The first move is you have to get yourself into a place where you will be treated with grace. You have to receive that. You have to experience it. You have to see what that does to your soul. You have to come to grips with the fact that you have been the beneficiary of a kindness that you don't deserve. And when that settles into your heart, all of a sudden you find yourself able to treat other people in a similar way. You almost find yourself being surprised of, huh. I normally would have told that cashier off. I, I normally would have gotten in a couple of words for the customer service person on the phone about how long I had to wait. And wow, huh, I stayed oddly quiet today when I had that opportunity. You'll just kind of catch yourself in these moments of grace, but it all comes out of having been in an environment where you've received it first. Yeah, I, we spoke about my divorce and how when my wife dropped the bomb about 10 years ago that she was leaving, it, it, it had this massive effect on me of making me turn inwardly, look at myself, and realize what a mess I was and how I've been forgiven that. And, and, and it was just so powerful, and it made me so much more willing to extend grace than to her because we were in the midst of court battles and everything else, and it's easy to get ticked and pissed and, and, and to just turn off the switch and battle. But I was just so much more willing to see her through graceful, forgiving eyes. And grace makes it safe to admit that you are the problem. Right? I mean, it's easy. I mean, in the story you're telling, I mean, in any marriage, this is what we all do in marriage, you know, kind of writ large or, or writ small. When something goes wrong, our initial instinct always is to blame the other person. Right? I'm a master at telling you what my wife, Laura, has done wrong. Right? I mean, and, and, she, and she can return the favor. Grace be, makes it safe to say, you know what, before I talk about how you treated me or you said this, did this, didn't do this, whatever, grace makes it safe to say, wait a minute, let me, let's just be real. I'm part of the problem. I've contributed to this. Maybe I'm the majority of the problem. Maybe I'm all of the problem. Um, but if you don't have some understanding of grace, you're going to fight like heck to avoid that conclusion. And it's disarming, isn't it? It, it, it sort of you know, deactivates or de-electrifies a situation if people are tensed up or whatever. When you confess that like that, it, it settles things down in a sense, doesn't it? I mean, it's probably the fastest, most practical way to resolve arguments. Right? I mean, it's th thinking about even on a I mean, super small scale, my wife and I, we've got uh, three of the cutest little kids, one, three, and five years old. But it means life is life is just perpetually uh, chaotic um, around our house. And yesterday morning was just kind of crazy morning around the house. And I was thinking that Laura was going to take care of something before I went to work. And I came downstairs and was on the way out the door. And, oh, wait, I haven't done that. I'm so sorry. And I was uh, already late, which is kind of my default in life, and uh, a little frustrated and like, oh, man, I wish you had done that, um, and kind of left the house just minorly. She could just tell I was, I was frustrated. So she sent me um, a text message saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry uh, you were frustrated and blah, blah, blah. And everything in me, you know, my, my sort of sinful, fallen, ungracious flesh 
wanted to explain exactly why she was right. Yes, I was frustrated. Yes, it was her fault, but I'm sure you're going to do better tomorrow, darling. And Grace makes it safe to say not only, yeah, you're right, I was frustrated, and I didn't handle that well, but if we just want to get the whole story out there, I was frustrated because I was being really selfish. I just wanted you to take care of what I wanted taken care of. And frankly, I was probably being a little arrogant. I thought what I had to do this morning was more important than what you had to do. So, babe, I know you're trying to apologize, and I totally accept your apology. But just so you know, I was frustrated, I was arrogant, and I was selfish. There's not a whole lot to do after that. <laughs> I mean, she's just kind of like, okay, I forgive you. And trust me, that's the you know one example of me getting it right in the last 72 hours. I, I hope we run out of time before you ask me for all the examples of me getting it wrong um, in the last couple of days. But once you do that, once you sort of throw yourself under the bus, it's there's just not there's not a whole lot else to fight about. There's not a whole lot else to do. You kind of said, well, hey, if you're if you're going to be my prosecutor. Why don't I just do the job for you? I'll just tell you the whole story. It's ugly. It's nasty. I'm not proud of it. I don't like it. But Grace makes it safe for me to admit that. So give us some more examples of what you called when we talked at one point advanced grace. I mean, you talked about serving in a soup kitchen. That's that's great and wonderful and it's good and we should do these things. But when it really rubber hits the road, it's when you work for a coworker, you're trying to help them and, and promote them even though they're attacking you and, and you're acting this way with your wife, even though you, she made some mistakes and all, you're still humbling yourself. Give us some other examples the listeners can hear about advanced grace. Well, I think, I think it's a really good question, and in some ways it goes back to the definition of grace, because you, you use the example of serving in a soup kitchen. That classic. That, that's kind of what we think of when we think of grace. Oh, isn't that wonderful? And he's taking time out of his day. She's got a busy career, and, and here she is. How gracious. Go back to the definition, though. Grace is, by definition, unmerited kindness. To say you're being gracious by going and serving at a soup kitchen is to say the people that are getting that meal don't deserve this. So there's actually a part of me that's like, I'm not sure that soup, serving at a soup kitchen is grace. It may be kindness. It may be loving your neighbor. It may be a, a wonderful thing to do. It's not necessarily grace. Grace, I mean, the real advanced work of grace is, again, it's this, I, I, I want to stay focused on this definitional issue. It's when you know the other person doesn't deserve it. It's when the 28-year-old young woman does the hard work of wrestling through if and how she wants to forgive her parents for some of the ways that they hurt her as she was growing up some of the ways that they didn't love her well. And she's looking at them and she's saying, I know that you didn't always act with my best interest at heart. I know that. I'm going to figure out how to forgive you anyway. Right? That's when it gets hard. So let's switch gears a little bit. You've, you've got a new church, and a lot of people say inside and outside of the church, why do we need new churches right now? We've got falling attendance and disappearing churches, and other people will say we've already got too many still. Why start a church these days? Why did you start Restoration City Church? 
Well, we started the church because um, the, the simple reality is when you look at population growth in America and you look at the growth of the church, the, the overall population is vastly um, surpassing the growth of, of churches. So, I mean, just, just from a statistical standpoint, um, we are not in any way as the church keeping up with uh, the demands of the overall population. But I think I think there is, you know, w- within that um, sort of a, a, another misconception. I mean, because some, some of you are like, man, it's just a story of population growth. I mean, supply and demand curve. And I mean, that sounds like a very uninspiring way, you know, uninspiring reason to start a church. The thing that we try to tell our congregation often is we didn't plant Restoration City, and, and, and this is true of anybody who is planting a church, anybody who's starting a church. It's not that we think we have found some great new way of doing church that's going to be so much more attractive than the other church down the road. So, yay, let's get everybody to leave the church down the road and come to our church, and won't that be wonderful and accomplish you know, very little for advancing the kingdom of God? That, that's not the idea at all. Um, the way we say it at our church is we didn't plant Restoration City because uh, the Christians in D.C. needed another worship option on Sunday morning. We planted Restoration City because this city needs more Christians who are willing to live on mission. And, and really what we mean by that in the context of what we're talking about today is who are willing to go out and help create that grace culture. T- tell me about some of the – we talked about some of the – the statistics, some of the good things about a new church, the impact that it has that an existing church uh, wouldn't have. I mean, can you share some of those with us? Sure. I mean, in, in terms of statistics, I can probably only speak for our uh, tribe of churches. But if you look at the average Baptist church that's out there, um, you know, we normally see if there's 100 members in a church, they'd probably baptize about three people, 3.4 people uh, a year. If, if you translate that same 100 people into the context of a new church, it ends up being about 11.7 so, and why is that important? What is baptism? What does that mean? Baptism is really the public declaration that you have embraced the grace of Christ. So it, it really is this uh, kind of way. I mean, this isn't always how I would describe it on Sunday, but in the context of the conversation that we're having, it, it's sort of your way of going public as I am a recipient of grace, Me- meaning, A, I am somebody who's acknowledged my need for grace. But B, I am somebody who is celebrating the fact that I have found that grace in Christ, which should be the source to then be able to go out and create that grace culture uh, throughout the city. So it's more effective, in a sense, at doing that when you have a a new church or some sort of excitement there or something that allows it to do that? Yeah, well, I think, and some people, you know, probably the cynical answer is there's kind of a a sink or swim kind of thing because uh, you know it, you know if you church has been around for a while a bunch of people showing up you kind of feel like hey we're good uh, i remember when my wife laura and i and a small team of people planted restoration city there's kind of that idea of man there need to be more people in the room a couple years from now or this ain't gonna work so maybe there's just a little bit of a survival instinct but I think there is also something uh, very socially disarming uh, for people in a new church because sometimes it can feel really weird if I mean I'm going to go to a church and it feels like it's not the case, but it feels like they all know each other and I'm the only one who doesn't know anybody here and I'm an outsider looking in and, and and you know one not everybody knows each other anywhere near as well as you think and two you're not the only new person there but that's what it feels like. It's nice when you show up at a younger church and you kind of realize very quickly, 
oh, wait, they're all getting to know each other. Um, I'm really not an outsider looking in. They're trying to figure this out. And um, we also have a tremendous uh, need for people to serve. Right. We're, we're, we're kind of in that fledgling embryonic stage and there's plenty of places like, man, you want to uh, get involved? We have needs. So it works well. Yeah. I mentioned that uh, I go to Grace Community Church. Yeah, the church. primary church is down at um, Thomas Jefferson Middle School, but they opened a new church in George Mason High School in West Falls Church. And, you know, the, the buzz, I mean, everybody's volunteering, and, and we, we gather half an hour before the service, and everyone gets around in the circle, and we talk, and we pray, and, and just everybody's a part of things, and there's much more vibrancy and excitement about what's going on there. So I can imagine you probably have that in your culture right now as well. Yeah. T- Tim Keller's a pastor up in uh, New York, uh, Presbyterian pastor in New York, and he he's probably one of the best defenders and explainers of this idea of starting new churches. And he makes the argument brilliantly, far better than I ever could, that new churches are actually a gift to uh, not only the non-Christians of a city, but also to all of the existing churches. In some ways, and this is not to say that older and more established churches don't do this, but it's easy for young, young, small, nimble churches to innovate, to kind of be the R&D department of the overall church. And, you know, frankly, what that means is we probably get nine out of every 10 things we try wrong, but we're small enough that nobody really gets hurt. Uh, but then every once in a while, we stumble into something that works. And Yeah, your uh, startup culture. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, you know, um, we actually work. Our offices are in a co-working space in Arlington. So oh, we work around a bunch of startups. We're just the church startup. So let's return. Let's talk about another thorny word. I mean, we've defined grace. Let's talk about the gospel. You know, what is the gospel and how does it relate to grace? I mean, in some ways... Grace is a one-word uh, description of the gospel. I mean, it, the the two are are almost synonymous. I mean, gospel te- technically means good news, but it is the good news that God, because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, God is now able to deal with humanity in, in terms of grace. And it's the understanding that we've all sinned, which I, I think even a modest amount of self-reflection we all become aware of that. I mean, if, if if we really pay attention to what we do, what we say, what we think in a given day, um, I, I don't think you need some big, you know, sweaty, red-faced preacher screaming at you that you're a sinner. I think we all get that. Um, I, I think Jesus and the context of grace of the cross makes it safe for us to admit that. And then we understand, wait a minute, Jesus went to the cross to die for my sin. Jesus took my place on the cross so that I could be forgiven. Wow, that's grace that the Son of God died in my place, took the death that I should have endured. That's God's judgment on my sin. He did that for me. Wow. Okay. Now that's going to influence the way I treat other people uh, when they wrong me, when when they need to be a recipient of grace. Now you say that it's pretty obvious to everyone when we really stop and think, but we're not doing a lot of stopping and thinking these days. There's just the social media and everything. It's it's funny. I, I think of Paris Hilton of all people. You know when she got put in prison 
people started, you know, positing that, you know, wow, she's probably going to be reflecting on her life and be you know, have nothing to do, no social media, anything. It's probably going to have a profound impact on her. Of course, she only spent a day or two in jail, and then. And <laughs> but it then, was a big day. Yeah, it was a big day. But I mean, that, that's an issue too. Getting people to slow down and really look at themselves and look at themselves honestly and humbly. I mean, is this something that you you really encourage your congregation to do? Yes, I mean we are we are experts at avoiding our own souls. I mean we do it so many different ways that it's almost hard to count them. I mean we will distract ourselves incessantly, um, whether that's Twitter, Facebook, news apps, emails, texts, phone calls, none of which are inherently bad, but we use them to distract ourselves um, incessantly. We overwork ourselves. We numb ourselves, whether we do it with Netflix or food or drinking or drugs or relationships. I mean, we are uh, we're, we're, in so many ways, we're terrified of being alone. Um, we don't want to be alone because we don't want to deal with some of the thoughts and some of the conclusions and some of the realities that would become uh, screamingly obvious in even five or ten minutes of silence. Uh, sometimes in our uh, gatherings on a Sunday morning, we will just have a, a period of silence and and period is a wild overstatement because I, I almost want to guarantee it never goes more than forty five seconds. But sometimes, and I I will confess, um, I I cheat every once in a while and will look around the auditorium or look out from the stage or something, and sometimes I see a look on people's faces that you would swear it's been going for forty five minutes. Uh. And I'm like, it's been thirty seconds. Everybody, calm down. But that's how foreign. Um, silence and solitude and stillness are in our lives. And I think the whole point of grace is you don't need to be afraid of what you're going to find when you're alone. You, You can look into your heart and you can see a wickedness that terrifies you. But if you're doing it in the context of, wait a minute, everything I undercover here, Jesus has already dealt with. Everything that I'm going to find out about myself, God already knew before he sent his son to the cross. God knew how self-absorbed I can be. God knows how prideful. God knows how arrogant. God knows how impatient. God knew all of that. And not just in a general way. He knew what I was going to say on Tuesday morning. He knew what I was going to do on spring break my sophomore year of college. He knew all of it. I mean, he has details. And he willingly sent Christ to die for that. Okay, now I have something to do with what I find when I'm alone. So, I think grace makes it safe to slow down. We got 40 seconds. Do you want to issue a call to action, some sort of challenge to our listeners? I, I think my call to action would would be that you owe it to yourself to get yourself into an environment where you will ex- experience grace. It's one thing to hear a broadcast about grace. It's even one thing to read about books. It's one thing to study it, read tweets about people that like to talk about grace, all that. There is something transforming about being in an environment where you experience it. I would like to think that your local church would be a great place to start. Um, if, if for some reason you've stumbled into a church that operates on a principle that is something other than grace, you have to follow a bunch of rules or we're going to judge you, you have to follow a bunch of rules or we're going to gossip about you, then uh, run. Um, run to a place where you will be treated with grace. You owe it to your soul to do that. 
Thanks, John, so much for joining us. And thank you for your passion for helping people to understand true grace and embody it. If listeners want to find out more about Restoration City Church, please visit them on the web at restorationcity.church. And if you'd like to join them for services, they meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at Gunston Middle School at 2700 South Lang Street in Arlington. A replay of this program, along with selected highlights, will be posted on the graceand30.com website in the next day or two. And we'll also have the interview available on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Twitter, Facebook, and WERA.FM. This is Ed and John signing off from Grace and 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Have a great night and be sure to tune into Grace.